Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 11, second half of chapter. The previous half of the chapter, the first half, was concerning John the Baptist, where Jesus is trying to rehabilitate John because apparently he showed some doubt about whether Jesus was true Messiah. The reason for that was he was in prison. Jesus not only reassures John that he's the Messiah, he then rehabilitates John and talks about what a great and fantastic prophet he was. Now we get to the last part of this chapter, and Jesus is going to compare John to, he's going to contrast John with the nasty Pharisees and Sadducees and the unbelieving people in the cities around where he's ministering. So this is going to be a half chapter of denunciation, starting with verse 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17 in Matthew 11. Jesus says this, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. And basically what the image here is kids playing, and there's one group of kids that act like a bunch of blockheads. It doesn't matter what you do, you can't get them to dance. You can't get them to, to play along with the game here. You can't get them, to, if you place a flute, which is happy music, they don't dance. They just sit there like stones, and then it's okay, we'll sing a dirge. Well, they don't pretend like they're mourning. Well, what's the metaphor? Well, the flute represents Jesus' ministry. He played a flute to that generation, which means he brought them good news good news of regeneration, peace, hope, victory, all the spiritual things that come from Jesus' ministry, and the Pharisees did not listen. So then John the Baptist, when he came to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he sang a dirge by saying that the axe was at the root of the trees. He called them a whole bunch of bad names, if you recall. They still didn't respond to that either. So it doesn't matter whether you come to the Pharisees with messages of judgment or whether you come to the Pharisees and Sadducees with messages of hope and redemption. It doesn't matter. They don't listen because they're spiritual blockheads. We go to verses 18 and 19 in Matthew 11. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. John coming neither eating nor drinking, that refers to the, to the fact that John's disciples fasted a lot. If you recall that controversy or that question that the, that the, disciples, brought, the disciples of John the Baptist brought to Jesus, How come you're not fasting? And we are fasting. Jesus says, and Jesus answered, well, because the, 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 the groom is here and we don't fast at a wedding feast. You, know, you recall that story. Well, this is how the Pharisees were. They say, okay, we look at John's disciples and they're fasting. And then they say to John's disciples, you got a demon. So then the Son of Man, on the contrary, he doesn't fast and his disciples don't fast. And they're celebrating and they're preaching a victorious, glorious message. And then the Pharisees say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Jesus is not fasting, so he's gluttonous, as if the opposite of not fasting is gluttony, which is absurd. That would make everybody on earth a glutton. And they say he's a drunkard. Why? Because he drank a little bit of wine. And he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, horrible, horrible. He's trying to tell people that sinners need salvation, and, and therefore the, and the Pharisees, in response, condemn him for that. So it doesn't matter whether it's John the Baptist or whether it's Jesus. And again, Jesus is trying to vindicate John the Baptist. He's continuing with that theme by, by pointing out that it's not John's fault. 
It's the Pharisees and how they re- reacted. And there's not any contrast between Jesus and John. Their ministers were different. John's preaching damnation and condemnation. Jesus is preaching salvation. There wasn't any contradiction in their ministry. They were united in one purpose, and they were opposed in a common front by the evil Pharisees. Jesus finishes off this. He says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Who is that wisdom? Well, the NIV study Bible and John Gill say that the wisdom refers to God because God sent both John the Baptist and Jesus, and the result's going to be wonderful, and the Pharisees are not going to like the results, and so God is going to be vindicated by sending two different kinds of people to the Pharisees. He sent a prophet, John, and then he sent the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus. It could be the gospel is vindicated by her deeds. It could be Jesus himself is vindicated by his deeds. So it's not really clear here. It could be God the Father or God the Son. But the point is, is that God is going to be vindicated. And Jesus is going to be vindicated because of what they did. And what they did was not it was not gluttony and was not having a demon. We go to, let's talk about this eating thing, about how John did not eat. John the Baptist, John Gill says this, he ate sparingly, very little, and what he did eat and drink was not the common food and drink of men. He neither ate bread nor drank wine, but lived upon locust and wild honey. He excused all invitations to people's houses and shunned all feasts and entertainments. He abstained from all free and sociable conversation with men in eating and drinking. And, of course, Jesus did exactly the opposite. Pharisees didn't know how to deal with it. that. They just knew that they hated both of them. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 21. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Now, why does it say most of his miracles were done there? Because when you see a miracle of Jesus, that means you've come face to face with God the Father. You, you are seeing a work of God, the, the, the maker of the universe, of the heavens and earth. And you say, well, I don't believe that. Well, it's big judgment for people like that. They have to have awful hard hearts to do that. So he began to denounce the cities because they did not repent. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would, would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It is apparent from this verse that Tyre and Sidon were well known for their sin and immorality. They, of course, were ports on the Mediterranean coast, and they were engaged in lots of trade. And all throughout history, when you have port cities, I don't know what it is about it, but full of vice and immorality. Shanghai, for example, in the 1930s. So who were these towns? Carson and Bethsaida. Carson was a little town about two miles north of Galilee, excuse me, of Capernaum, which, of course, was on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then Bethsaida was just off of the northwest shore of Galilee. Now, there's something interesting about these two towns. We know Capernaum was the city of Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, and we know Jesus worked out of Capernaum. That was his base of operations. And then we know that Bethsaida was the home of, originally, not after they moved to Capernaum, but originally Bethsaida was the home of Andrew and Peter, as well as Philip. We know that from John 1.44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. So here we have these two cities where three of the apostles were from, and Jesus was operating from, and they get denounced, basically saying, you guys are going to Gehenna. You guys are going down. 
This shows that Jesus wasn't all sweetness and light and mercy like people love to say, little Jesus, meek and mild. No, he preached judgment. He preached judgment here. He also preached judgment when he overthrew the tables of the money chamber of the money changers in Jerusalem. So he knew how to judge. He knew how to preach hell, fire, and damnation when the occasion called for it. Tyre and Sidon, of course. Tyre is right north of Haifa on the Mediterranean coast, and Sidon is above that. Tyre is famous in ancient world history. It was uh, invested twice in two memorial, memorable sieges, once by Nebuchadnezzar, which if I remember correctly, failed. And Alexander the Great's siege of Tyre was really interesting because the citizens of Tyre tore down the old city on the coast and they built a new city with the remains out on an island out in the sea a little bit. And Alexander had to build a mole out there to get it. That is recorded in ancient history. Look it up in Wikipedia. You'll see a good, interesting battle. So Tyre shows up a lot in the scriptures. And uh, usually not favorably, as as here. Jesus actually visited Tyre and Sidon one time. Matthew 15:21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So, which is, I remember when I first realized that I was kind of surprised because that's sort of a pagan Gentile area. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says about those two cities. Quote: As their wealth and prosperity engendered luxury and its concomitant evils, irreligion and moral degeneracy. Their overthrow was repeatedly foretold in ancient prophecy and once and again fulfilled by victorious enemies. Yet they were rebuilt and at this time were in a flourishing condition. In other words, they didn't, they didn't learn from history and were condemned to repeat it. Matthew chapter 11 verse 22, Jesus continues, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now here Jesus is using an a fortiori argument saying that it's bad for Tyre and Sidon, but even more bad is going to be for Bethsaida and Chorazin. And this, of course, assumes that Tyre and Sidon are the poster children for immorality and vice. They're well known for their immorality and idolatry, and so Jesus can refer to them as something bad's going to happen to them. It's going to be even worse for Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now he turns to Capernaum in Matthew 11, verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Now, as we know, Capernaum is where Jesus operated from, staying in Peter's house, Peter and Andrew's house there in Capernaum. So the residents there had a chance to see an awful lot of miracles. That's where his ministry was based. And so they get, because they rejected, they didn't believe him, they're going to go to Hades, which is a polite way of saying they're going to hell. Hades is not precisely hell, but it's but it, it has the same flavor. It means death, destruction, the shades. <laughs> You're gone. You will descend to Hades. And then Capernaum is compared to Sodom. For the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, and of course Sodom is it used to be considered an evil thing, where a bunch of homosexuality was going on, sodomy, you know. But now, of course, it's enshrined in the state in the laws of the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah, otherwise known as America. Now, this phrase, this idea about Capernaum not being, being, being exalted to heaven might be a play on the Hebrew, according to John Gill. The name in Hebrew is close to a, to a Hebrew phrase which means a place higher than Mount Carmel. So you will not be exalted to a place higher than Mount Carmel, will you? Is the idea Mount Carmel is way up on a hill. I've seen it. You look out. It's way up there. It's right next to the Mediterranean Sea, but it's still way up in the air. So... You think that you're going to be full of prosperity and great privilege, do you? No, you're going to hell. You're going to Hades. And as a matter of fact, Capernaum was destroyed in the times of Vespasian. That's the guy, the Roman general that ended up 
started the Jewish war, he, he left the, the siege of Jerusalem to go back to be emperor, and he left his son Titus to finish the job. And right around that time of the Jewish war, Capernaum was destroyed during the Jewish war. And it could also, if this descending to Hades might refer to the spiritual death of the inhabitants. I don't know. It's hard to say that a city loses its salvation because it's people that get saved and are damned to hell, not cities. Cities are just destroyed. So I think that's what it's talking about. The Capernaum was entirely, utterly lost until the 19th century when somebody found it, and it's now been excavated. I've been there. They've got Peter's house there, a synagogue on top of that, a whole bunch of stuff you can look at. Continuing to Matthew 11:24, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I say to you, that's Capernaum, that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Well, unless Sodom, as I said earlier, is the place, will, is the city that gave the name to sodomy, which consisted of homosexuality and bestiality. Jude chapter 1, verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, that strange flesh is sexual perversion, if you look in the Christian Standard Bible, the NIV, I'm using the NESB here, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, homosexual sexual perversion are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Uh, little Jesus, meek and mild, telling Capernaum, his hometown, that they're going to hell. The day of judgment, what day of judgment is that? It will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment. Well, most people take it as the day of judgment at the end of the world. John Gill, or excuse me, Adam Clark says it could be the particular day that Sodom was destroyed when it went up in flames, when the sky opened up, lightning probably probably sulfur belching out of the ground from that volcanic region and just destroyed the place and wiped it out. That day, it could have been the day of judgment for Sodom in particular when it was destroyed. Genesis 19:24. then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Oh, brimstone and fire. We can't mention that in today's postmodern world, can we? It might trigger somebody's sensitivities. Moving on now to chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. At that time, Jesus said, what time? Well, this discourse is probably connected to the previous discourse in which Jesus, that's in chapter 10, previous chapter, in which Jesus sent his apostles out to minister. And if you recall, he predicted lots and lots and lots of persecution. But here he's talking about the fact that some people are going to believe. Who are, the, who are going to believe? Infants. He's making a metaphor here. He's comparing people who come like a child, who are not educated in the rabbinic schools of the Pharisees, who were not scribes, but they were simple fishermen, uneducated people. They were children in the eyes of the world, but they believe. Contrasted with the wise and intelligent, and, of course, the wise and intelligent were the scribes and Pharisees. Now, notice this is not wise people in general and intelligent people in general. Paul himself was a very wise man. He was a learned man. He knew Greek philosophy. He knew the Hebrew scriptures. It's talking about wise and intelligent scribes and Pharisees who were reprehensible hypocrites and arrogant and whose learning shut off the truth of Jesus. It's just like... It's hard for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven. The Bible does not say it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Rich people do believe, but unfortunately it's not as less co it's less common that they believe because they're dependent upon their riches just like wise people. Arrogant uh, wise people have more of a 
have a chance to become arrogant because they have the means to by which they might become arrogant because they're so smart, like their PhDs and colleges and that kind of stuff. I've lived all my professional life amongst such people, and I understand that. But that doesn't mean that all wise and intelligent people don't come to Jesus because Paul himself was a wise and intelligent person. So let's get the context here. Jesus has hidden things from people not because they're merely wise and intelligent, but because they're wise, intelligent Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. Now, it's ironic that there is a rabbinic saying that says this. This is from Adam Clark. In the days of the Messiah, every species of wisdom, even the most profound, shall be revealed, and this even to children. So even the rabbis were saying that messianic wisdom was coming to children, but, and it did, it came to children. But it was through Jesus who the rabbis hated. 1 Corinthians 1.19, Paul quotes Isaiah with using the same idea. Paul says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And again, this is talking about arrogant, wise people, not every wise person, but arrogant, wise people who rely on their natural wisdom to the exclusion of God's revealed knowledge. Paul is quoting Isaiah verse, chapter 29, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. And that of course, was fulfilled in Jesus right here. They did not believe Jesus, and they were destroyed. They were destroyed completely in AD 70, gone with the wind, never coming back again. Now, some people might object, people who don't love God might say, wait a minute, how can you blame these scribes and Pharisees for not believing? Because right here, the verse says, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Well, if God hid the those things from the wise and intelligent, isn't it God's fault that they don't believe? Well, the simple answer to that is the reason that God hid those things from the scribes and the Pharisees is because of their hard and asinine hearts. That's why he hid the truths of the gospel from them. It's because they deserve to have it hidden. From them. In fact, that's why he spoke in parables, because the parables meaning was hidden except to those who really wanted to hear. And those who didn't want to hear, their judgment was lessened because the truth was not presented to them in such stark terms. Let's move to verse 27, Matthew 11. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone whom the Son desires to reveal him. Now this knowing the Son, it means know completely and fully. Because obviously we know Jesus. The scripture here says, Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. That would mean nobody could get saved because nobody would ever know Jesus. It means know him fully and completely. To do that, you've got to be God. And of course, the Father was God. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. The Son and the Father are equal persons of the Trinity, and obviously they know each other. But now he says, no one can know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. And that, of course, that knowing is not full knowledge, but the knowledge of salvation. And how do we get that? Well, the Son's got the desire to reveal that to us. Now, this is a good verse for all Arminians to chew on. Uh, it recalls John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That sounds very much, that's in John, that sounds very much like this verse 27 in Matthew 11. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. If the Son desires to reveal the Father to you, he'll do it. 
Well, that means that uh, if somebody does not come to Jesus, that means because Jesus didn't desire to reveal it to him. Now, notice that this knowledge that Jesus had is an implicit, almost an explicit claim to divinity, actually. No one knows the Father except the Son. All things have been entrusted to me by the Father. What he's saying is all things having to do, all spiritual things, all things pertaining to his mediate, mediatorship, mediate, mediatorship. <laughs> For example, angels, he could deal with angels. Angels could take charge of him, power over demons. He knows who the elect of God will be, all power in heaven. As Adam Clark says, he's the savior, the mediator, the head, the pattern, the pastor, and sovereign judge of the whole world. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says he knows everything about the whole administration of the kingdom of grace. Now, make it a claim like that, that no one knows the Father except the Son, and of course he is saying that he's the Son. Any Pharisee listening to that would know that Jesus is claiming divinity. He is claiming to be God. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, here Jesus is making the contrast between him desiring to reveal uh, himself to people and, the other, on the other hand, the Pharisees who desire to burden the people and to keep them apart from the knowledge of God and to keep them from having rest and peace. And this is, of course, talking about spiritual rest and peace. Now, the interesting thing here is Matthew 11:28 says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Well, wait a minute, we say didn't Jesus just say in the previous verse that no one can know the Father except the one to whom the Son desires to reveal him? So that's not everybody. That's just only those whom the Son desires to reveal. Well, of course, that's a, that's a thorny theological problem that reminds me of Hermann Hoeksema, who was in the Christian Reformed Church. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can you have a proclamation of the gospel? How can you have a true effectual call or a, excuse me, a, a, a true call of the gospel to the unsaved if Jesus doesn't desire to save those people. And that means it can't be true. It can't be really there. And so he started a, a new Presbyterian denomination. What is it? The Presbyterian Reformed Church. I forgot the name of it. Presbyterians are always uh, writing papers and, and bringing each other before ecclesiastical trials and getting into incredibly abstract theological controversies and then splitting up all over the place. But anyway, that was one of their big deals is how can there be a true call of the gospel when uh, when Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and burdened. How could he be saying that to everyone when he only desired some to come? Well, let me give you a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown dealing with that problem. Quote, but alas for me, May some burdened soul sighing for relief here exclaim, If it be thus with us, how can any poor creature do but lie down in passive despair unless he could dare to hope that he may be one of the favored class to whom the Son is willing to reveal the Father? But nay, this testimony to the sovereignty of that gracious will on which alone man, men's salvation depends is designed but to reveal the source and enhance the glory of it when once imparted, not to paralyze or shut the soul up in despair." which is a fancy way of saying is we don't know who Jesus has desired to make known to the Father. We don't know whom Jesus has decided to elect. We don't know who has been chosen. So that means that anybody who hears can come. From my point of view, anybody can come. We don't have to feel like, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm in the elect, so I'm not sure that Jesus is willed to reveal the Father to me, so I'm just going to lie down here and be miserable. No. He says, come, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And, of course, why were they burdened? Because of the burdens of the Pharisees, which they put on them. You can't toss an apricot pit more than three meters from your bed on Saturday, or you're going to hell, and that kind of stuff. 
And he says, come to me. And that coming is not just to come hear him preach. They'd already done that. It means come and believe in him and be his disciple. John 6.35 says this, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. It means come and believe and follow. I mentioned that the Pharisees were burdening, burdening the Jews. And Jesus was trying to give them rest here. You're weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Here's an example of burdening. Uh, uh, a reference to that burden, burdening, Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. But that's the burden of the Pharisees. Jesus contrasts that with the rest which he can give to those all who are weary and heavily burdened. Here's the rest, according to John Gill. Quote, Spiritual rest here, peace of conscience, ease of mind, tranquility of soul, through an application of pardoning grace, a view of free justification by the righteousness of Christ and full atonement of sin by his sacrifice and eternal rest hereafter in Abraham's bosom in the arms of Jesus in perfect and uninterrupted communion with Father, Son, and Spirit. That's rest, folks. The Pharisees could not deal with that. They could not compete with that. Jesus was totally new, new wine and old wineskins. Chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. Jesus continues, All of you, Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. There's that rest again. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, you're going to find rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, normally when you take up a yoke, that means you're about to, to do work. Well, when an animal takes up a yoke, that yoke spreads the load evenly out across his shoulders so that it's easier for him to pull. Jesus never says we're going to sit around on, in, on this earth lying on rose petals, perfumed rose petals, and doing nothing. we got got work to do, and life is hard. But when you take up the yoke of Jesus, he spreads that work around, that, that labor, that load around, and it makes it easy for you to work. So it's a very good metaphor. Whereas the Pharisees, they just put a big load right on your back. They put a bunch of stones in a bag and say, carry it, put it on your back. Big difference between taking up Jesus' yoke and carrying the burdens of the Pharisees. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He didn't say there's not going to be a burden. And he didn't say there wasn't going to be a yoke. There's not going to be work. But it's going to be light compared to the Pharisees. Now, it's interesting he says, take up my yoke because I am gentle and humble in heart. Well, usually when people talk about they are humble, they're bragging. You know, oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. There's... <laughs> As that old, uh, who sang that song? I forgot who sang it now, but it's a, it's, it just seems sort of contradictory to be bragging about how humble you are. But Jesus, he's totally, he was humble. He was the son of God and he was humble. I mean, he was going around, he just equated himself with the father. He says, I know the father and the father knows me and nobody can do that but me. And yet then he says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. What an incredible contradiction there. And excuse me, not contradiction, what an incredible contrast. He can do that because he was humble. He didn't care about his status. He, he didn't count it anything. He, he, he didn't count it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't, he didn't think it was a, an, a misappropriation of, of his status, a misinterpretation of his status to say he was equal to God. But he gave it up and he became humble. He emptied himself and came down here and he did everything to serve. He didn't come to to be served but in order to serve he was humble he cared about people the pharisees did not care about people so here we have the son of god saying that he's humble and it's not a problem with that only jesus could boast about being humble he's the only person that can really do that 
Anybody, anybody else that you hear is bragging about how humble they are, they're not really humble. Jesus was stating an obvious fact with no sense of false pride. Here's a verse from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 talking about Jesus being humble. Rejoice greatly daughter Zion. Shout in triumph daughter Jerusalem. Look your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Humble and riding on a donkey. On a colt the foal of a donkey. So there you have that strange paradox. The king of the world riding in triumph into his capital city on a donkey. On an ass. And of course this is totally contrary to most of the Jews preconceptions of the Messiah. They were expecting a great military leader and a and a hero. Jesus said, you will find rest for yourselves. That is a quote from Jeremiah 6.16. Jeremiah says this, this is what the Lord says, stand by the roadways and look, ask about the ancient paths, which is the way to what is good, then take it and find rest for yourselves. But they protested, we won't. And of course, in that typical, Jesus offers peace and rest. And how many people say, no, nah, we're not interested. But if you do take the road, the proper road, the ancient path, that leads to rest, uh, it's through Jesus. Jesus is the road that takes you to rest. Take it and find rest for yourselves. Now, Jesus said his yoke was easy. Now, ultimately, the reason his yoke is easy is because of the Holy Spirit within us assisting us to keep Jesus' commands. Now, let's look at a quote from John Gill to show how Jesus' commands contrast with those of Moses' Moses's commands and also the pharisaical, pharisaical additions to Moses. Quote, the law of Moses required perfect obedience, but gave no strength to perform and threatened with condemnation and death in case of the least failure and of the numerous and some very severe rites and usages of the ceremonial law and of the bulky and heavy traditions of the elders and ordinances of men. You're not going to be happy trying to keep the law of Moses. I wish reformed people would really understand that. And I wish they would become new covenant theologians instead. Instead of harking back to the law of Moses, they would talk about the law of Jesus, the law of Christ. How can the law of, of how can the law of Jesus or the, or the law of Christ be summed up? You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and thy neighbor as thyself. I don't have the site with me here. I think it's in John chapter 14 around there somewhere. John 15. I can't remember exactly. Now, this is an interesting paradox. Jesus said, come, follow me. My yoke is easy. He just finished telling them in the last chapter that take up your cross so that you can die for me. That's easy to die for Jesus. Wow. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He says this. This is an ex example of where he said that. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, that's interesting. Take up your cross. That's easy. Well, it is a strange spiritual paradox. The more you are willing to die, the easier your life gets. You don't worry about it when you lose your life savings or when you lose a loved one to death or when you lose your own life to death. And all that stuff doesn't mean quite so much when you know that there's victory and glory on the other side. So actually, Jesus is basically saying the world is hard. So if you die to the world, then life becomes easy. Usually taking up a yoke means adding a burden to yourself, but taking up the yoke of Christ, taking up that extra burden, actually becomes a source of rest. So, yeah, you'll have to put up with the world's sneering at you and, and you know, certain things that you can't do anymore, but you'll find out you don't want to do them, and you'll find out that there's so much freedom and, and, and blessing and joy when you follow Christ instead of following the world. It, it does become easier to live in this world, even though on the surface it looks a lot harder. Let's look at Psalms 55, verse 22, and I'll finish up Matthew 11. The psalmist says this, 
Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. You can take those burdens that you have like the Pharisees put on, put on the Jews back and you can try to carry those burdens yourself or you can throw them off, put them on Jesus' back and then take his yoke upon you and prepare to die to yourself. That's the secret of the Christian life. Hope you enjoyed Matthew 11. We'll take up Matthew 12 next audio.